It's the Maxwell Institute podcast. I'm Blair Hodges. I'd like to introduce you to a story about a man who was seeking for the true church of Christ. A man who prayed and then he reported having miraculous visitations. He recorded revelations about the true nature of God and how the true church should be built up, ultimately inspiring a large body of converts. If all of this sounds familiar, here's the surprising part. The man that I'm talking about started this particular movement in China in 1917. Melissa Inouye joins us to talk about this restorationist Christian movement in China, which continues to exist today in spite of strict Chinese control of religion. We're talking about Melissa Inouye's book, China and the True Jesus, Charisma and Organization in a Chinese Christian Church. This episode was recorded last year, but we held on to it to wait until the paperback version of her book comes out, and now the paperback version is out. You can send questions and comments about this episode to me at mipodcast at byu.edu. Melissa Weitzing Inouye joins us today. Uh, we're talking about her book, China and the True Jesus, Charisma and Organization in a Chinese Christian Church. All right. Chinese history. Melissa, this book is the first book that I think I've read that really delves into Chinese history. In fact, while you're focusing on these Christian movements that cropped up in China, the book also serves as kind of a nice introduction, I think, to the history of China. Was that a deliberate choice? That was a deliberate choice. So I have this kind of irrepressible urge to multitask, and I just couldn't stop myself from doing it. So it's supposed to be kind of using the True Jesus Church as a way to kind of work through Chinese history, because I remember from my first Chinese history class, class just getting lost in the 20s and the 30s. The political line of Chinese history kind of breaks apart in the 20s and the 30s. And in my first kind of encounter with Chinese history, I could never get it back together after that. So this was an attempt to just have one kind of main story that kind of took you through all the different turns of Chinese history. Growing up in the United States, I'm an American. And so history began in like 1776 or something for me, right? It's very, very young. I didn't grow up with this sense of deep time that other cultures experience. And so, for example, the Qing dynasty ruled China for centuries, right? So let's, let's talk about the Qing dynasty. This is, it wasn't just a political entity, though. It was also believed to be under heaven's mandate. So it was kind of like this kingdom that God established or that heaven established. The Qing dynasty, though, didn't last forever. It came crashing down in spectacular fashion. And you write about this in the 19th century. So that made room for some competing political and religious ideas to start taking root. So you had this long-standing dynasty that crashes down in the 19th century. And then, 1911, technically. So, it has problems, though, in the 19th century. And then in 1911 is the official That's the end, end of it. And then you've got like all these options on the table. Let's start there. What was it like in China then around 1900, around the turn of the century, when Christianity started to make real inroads into this place where it had been this Qing dynasty for generations before? So China in the early 1900s was a place where so many different ideas were circulating. We tend to think about, especially if we don't really study Chinese history, we think about China as this place that's way out there, um, and Chinese people just do Chinese stuff in China. But at this time, there was actually an incredible amount of transnational movement between China, America, Europe, and even like Australia, New Zealand, actually. So there were a lot of different ideas swirling around. The people who overthrew the Qing dynasty 
dynasty wanted to establish a parliamentary democracy, and that's what they ended up doing. But there were all these kind of different competing political ideas. And one of the very shortly after the Qing dynasty fell, actually, someone tried to establish a monarchy again. So there were a lot of different ideas on the table. And, you know, China had been an imperial system for thousands and thousands of years. So this completely sweeping away the old and establishing something that was transplanted from the West was always a very fraught task. And you could say that it kind of failed, at least in this first attempt to establish a republic. Things fell apart very quickly. The country became fragmented again. And it it wasn't until 1928 that a sort of national government was reestablished. But it actually wasn't until 1949 when there was a new government that actually controlled the entire country. And what struck me when I'm reading this part was how fragile systems of government really can be worldwide. Like they're trying to set up this new way of ordering things in China, and it requires people to actually do the organizing, but it also requires citizens to buy into it and to believe in it. And that's just as difficult as constructing a constitution or doing something like that, is getting people to actually buy in. Right. And not just like the people themselves, right, but also people who are forming the government. Those people also have to kind of buy into the system. So one of the problems with the new parliamentary system in the early 20th century was that people got into power and then they just kind of exploited their power and used money for their own personal gain. So to find a system that not only has buy-in from people who will vote or people who will support the system and not rebel, but also from people who will make the system work the way it's intended to work is quite tricky. And you need to have some pretty powerful ideas or experiences or beliefs holding you together. Yeah, so this is where your book takes us to this kind of crisis point almost in China's history. And as they're trying to figure out how the Qing dynasty is declining and what will replace it, all of these little reformist movements or these little prophetic movements start to crop up at this time. One that you write about is Hong Shouchun, a person who became a prophetic figure in the 1830s, around the time that Latter-day Saint listeners would think about Joseph Smith in the United States sort of living in this time of revival. And at the same time that this Christian church in the United States is being established, you have this prophetic figure in China doing something similar. Talk a little bit about Hong Shouchun. It wasn't exactly the same time as Mormonism. It was slightly later. But the specter of Mormonism was very much in the minds of observers in China when they saw this new Christian movement. They were actually, I found a, a source actually from a London Missionary Society publication where they referred to Hong Xiuquan's movement as Mormonites. Mm. You know, because he's quite similar. He's this guy who had this vision, and in the vision, he saw God the Father, and he saw Jesus Christ, God's Son. He was told that he was Christ's younger brother. He was given a sword and told to expel the demons from China. So he took this as a sign that the ruling Qing dynasty, who were ethnic Manchus, which is different from the vast majority of Chinese who are ethnically Han Chinese. So it's kind of this elite class uh, that was ethnically Yeah, and they're from different. the north, from the northern part of China, which is traditionally beyond China's borders. Mm. So he launches this anti-Qing dynasty rebellion, and uh, many people joined him. He was very successful, and they started out in the south of China, and they ended up sweeping up into the central areas of China, the kind of most wealthy, populated, uh, productive areas of China. 
And when and, you say sweeping up, I mean, they were kind of collecting and gathering people as they went. The, yeah. His people were swelling it, and it was a little militant as well. They were, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, and, and they had these very interesting cultural norms as well. So, for example, women fought in the Taiping armies, and when they established a kingdom in Nanjing, which is a, a very wealthy and prosperous Chinese city, they you know had rules when people had to go to church on Sundays. Everyone had to you know sing the Ten Commandments. People were organized. They went to churches in, in companies like in their military units. And yeah, they helped, they controlled China for over these areas in China for over a decade. How did Hong Shouchun become familiar with Christianity to begin with? So he encountered Christianity in what we call Canton or Guangzhou, a kind of major city in the south. He was going to take the civil service examination, which is the exam that is the gateway to fame and fortune in Chinese culture, because it allows you to become a government official, which is the fanciest, nicest job in the Chinese government. So he ran into a missionary there, and he ran into some religious tracts, which he kept and brought home. And I think these tracts included some excerpts from the Old and the New Testaments. And eventually when he had his dream, this his vision of God, the Heavenly Father, and this elder brother, he kind of put everything together and he realized that it was talking about Jesus Christ and the God of the Bible and that he was called to be God's Chinese son. How did other Chinese figures, especially people in authority, feel about Christianity making inroads here? Was Did they view it as welcome, just sort of, oh, this isn't something that people in different parts of the world believe, that's great, we can introduce that here? Or was there a reluctance to have an outside ideology come into the country? So because the Chinese imperial system is kind of inherently religious, it has always had a, an aversion to kind of competing religious movements, especially to very popular salvation-oriented movements. Now, usually these movements are Buddhist. So they saw the Christians, I believe, as, as a sort of Buddhist-style popular religious group. So originally there was a lot of antipathy from the local scholar officials towards Christian missionaries. Now, eventually, over time, as Western powers made further incursions into China and began to secure more treaties from China through military victories starting in 1842 and continuing throughout the 19th and the 20th centuries, they had to allow more Christian preaching in China. And eventually, I would say in the early 20th century, when the dynasty was really weak, when China as a country was very weak vis-a-vis the Western powers, there was a other sort of strain of thought which viewed Christianity as a kind of modern religion and saw the modernity of the Westerners as a kind of source of their strength. So right around the turn of the 20th century, there was this movement within Chinese officialdom to kind of reject Chinese folk religion as superstitious and backwards. And So these are like rituals people would do in their homes? Mm-hmm, like ancestor worship mm-hmm. or worshiping local deities and so on. And the elites were saying, we need to tamp down this superstition. Right. Or else we will be eaten up by Western powers in the dog-eat-dog world. Mm. So that's a way of saying that official attitudes towards Christianity have shifted over time, and they've always been kind of ambivalent. Mm. And Christianity in other countries at that time as well was going through sort of a progressive move where Christianity was thought to be at the forefront of culture. It was thought to lead to medical advancements and advancements in human knowledge. It it wasn't stereotyped as being backwards or superstitious in other parts of the world. And so it kind of entered into China during that phase of Christian existence as this forward thinking, more progressive, even more rational approach Mm -hmm. to faith. Yeah, so the major missionary societies like the London Missionary Society or the American Board of Commissioners of Foreign Missions 
and and other groups ran major medical and educational institutions in China. And yeah, these missionary-run institutions were the most advanced medical institutions and the most well-developed Western-style places of education. So Hong Shouchuan becomes very successful. In fact, he sets up what's called the Heavenly Kingdom. They kind of take over the government, right? Like it seems like they believe they're going to perhaps even rule in China generally. They were close to unsettling the entire Qing dynasty. Eventually, they lost with help from Western mercenaries and with the mobilization of kind of very vigorous local Qing dynasty officials. The Western missionaries were initially a little ambivalent. At first, they were really excited. They hoped that the Taipings would you know, conquer all of China and make China a Christian country. Yeah, this is like Protestant Reformation almost mm. happening, right? They're like, oh, this is exciting. Right. But then they began to view the typing teachings as heterodox. You know, that association with Mormons kind of shows where they thought they were on the scale of orthodoxy. And eventually they said, no, these guys are not our kinds of Christians. It's heresy, yeah. Yeah. And they worried about the Taipings threatening their settlements as well. And then there was violence too, right? In fact, yeah. the end of the heavenly kingdom was not a nice little ending. It was No, no it was very terrible. Yeah. Very bloody. Yeah. So you'd think at that point that China would be through with Christianity, but it wasn't through with Christianity yet. It hung around. And the next thing you talk about in the book is Wei Embo's restoration. This is a man who was one of the native Chinese people who was drawn to Christianity. And, and you talk about in the book how he became a prophetic figure that set him apart from other Christians in China. Tell people a little bit about him. So Wei Embo is very much like Joseph Smith in that he was a poor farm boy who came from a kind of northeastern rural area. And he moved to the big city of Beijing and wasn't very successful until he became a Christian. Once he became a Christian in the London Missionary Society, he had access to the society's kind of international networks, to the Christian community in Beijing, which was a very transnational community with friends in high places. You know, the influence of the Western powers was very closely connected to Christian institutions. So anyway, so he becomes this wealthy silk merchant in Beijing and eventually a Pentecostal. And in 1917, he has this theophany where he hears a voice that calls him out to the river outside the city. And he goes to the river with some of his friends who are kind of fellow seekers with him, their fellow Pentecostals. And he goes into the water to be baptized and he hears this voice that says, you must be baptized face down. So he dives into the water face down and he comes up and when he comes up out of the water. He sees Jesus and hears a voice that tells him to correct the church. So then he sets about restoring the one true church of Christ. What things does he focus on in correcting? He focuses on a variety of things, but most of them have to do with adhering more closely to the Bible. So part of this is linguistic. So for example, the London Missionary Society people and the kind of other establishment people used terms that Wei and Boa said were not in the Bible. They had names, the names of their churches sounded funny in Chinese. So for example, like the London Missionary Society churches were called the London churches. and In China. <laughs> right. And the Presbyterian churches were called the Elders Church. And some other churches had transliterated names that didn't really make sense at all. So very much as Joseph Smith does when he's saying, why are all these different churches and why do they not have the name of Jesus in them? Wei and Bo and his associates looked around and they said, if it's a church of London, then it's a church about London. They're like, we are the true Jesus church. So it's very... There's so many parallels. And print culture helped his message spread. It's another thing that you talk about in the book. His movement really takes off as he spread his word through printed materials and other things. 
You talk about how scholars sometimes will emphasize things like class to help explain the growth of a religious movement. So they would say, oh, people who are in poorer circumstances were drawn to this message. They saw it as a way to progress in society and, and elevate their status and things like that. And you don't rule those type of factors out, but your research also tries to broaden the picture and say that there's more to it than just than class uh, when people are joining these movements. Well, part of that, I think, is related to my identity as a religious person myself. As a religious person, you read something that says, oh, they were so poor and so uneducated, therefore they were religious. You're like, you know, it's got to be a little more complicated than that. And you know, when I looked at the documents and the things that people were saying, they were so excited that the things that were mentioned in the Bible, in the text of the Bible, which they read very carefully, were now happening in real life. And they were so excited that there was a church that would adhere to every word of the Bible as it was printed in Chinese, as opposed to kind of just doing the things that the European churches had been used to doing for hundreds of years. So I find them quite theologically discriminating, actually. And I think that's really important to kind of recognize the texture of their involvement in this religion. You also, it seems, try to take their voices really seriously, too, because if you sat down and talked to someone and kind of gave them this explanation of, oh, I think you're drawn to this religion because of class, that would seem very strange to someone. They would... It would be quite insulting, right? Yeah, yeah. You're poor and ignorant, so that's why you're a member of this church. Yeah. And they definitely wouldn't say that. That's Melissa Inouye. We're talking to her about her book, China and the True Jesus. I want to shift the topic to women in China. Wei Enbo's church was on the rise at a time when China was going through big cultural changes. We talked about they were figuring out a new system of governments, and this dynasty that had been around for centuries had been swept away. But you talk about how many of China's cultural norms had deeper roots and didn't just get easily swept away, especially when it came to women. What are some examples of that where culture didn't necessarily change, even though the system of government was undergoing change, especially when it came to women in China? You could say that it's actually easier to have a political revolution than it is to have a cultural revolution, right? The assumptions that people have about roles for men and women or about standards of beauty, all of these things are very deeply ingrained. And because they're not part of the kind of official institutional structures, it's much harder to change them. Hmm. So for hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years, actually, you know, women have always had a subordinate role in Confucian culture. And, you know, they're supposed to follow their husbands. And eventually when their sons become old, they're supposed to kind of defer to their sons who become the heads of the household. So what I find interesting about Christianity and women's issues in the 20th century is that for many, Christianity was a very emancipating outlet. It was an opportunity to receive education. It was an opportunity to have a vocation. Many widows became Bible women for Christian churches. In the True Jesus Church, some women became full-time preachers who were supported by the church as they went around preaching. So I see Christianity in China in the 20th century as another kind of institutional resource for women, another way in which women could organize and could hold authority and could accumulate you know, moral and social capital and have more influence in the world. Yeah, the fourth chapter of the book introduces us to someone named Deaconess Yang. This is a woman who became a leader in the True Jesus Church, but she passed through a number of other roles in society to get to that point. First, she was a Confucian daughter-in-law, then a nurse and a more modern woman, and then finally, a religious healer and organizer. Let's walk through that progression. That will give people a really good sense of the place of women in China at the time, in the experience of one woman who went through big changes throughout her life. Yeah. 
So I'm not exactly sure when she was born, but I think she was born basically around the turn of the 20th century. And she was an orphan, so she married early. One of the reasons for marrying early would be, you know, you don't have a family to support you and you have to kind of attach yourself to a man because that's the only way that you have kind of a status in society. Unfortunately for her, her husband died quite soon. And so then she was a widow. After her husband died, her mother-in-law died, which drew criticism for her because a Confucian daughter-in-law is supposed to take care of her mother-in-law. So maybe she was criticized for that. At this point, she tried to commit suicide, and suicide is a terrible thing, but in the context of the time, she was widely praised for trying to commit suicide because the point was, your husband's dead, you know, your mother-in-law's dead. What point is there for you to live? It's like very admirable for you to say, there's no point in living life, I'm just going to die. And that was the attitude of the time. Actually, sometimes uh, people who uh, committed suicide were sometimes honored with ceremonial arches later on. So anyway, so this just gives us a kind of picture of how much kind of independent status women had, which is not that much. So then after this, she became renowned for her suicide attempt, as terrible as that sounds. And she drew the attention of some Christian missionaries who invited her to go to a school. And these Christian schools were often offered with low tuition or sometimes even free to people who couldn't pay, and especially to women. So she became trained in this school, and she eventually became enrolled in a nurse training college, and she became a professional nurse. So she had a job and a salary in a major city in China, in Wuhan, and she was working in the big hospitals. And this kind of shows the direction that China was moving towards the emergence of some professional roles for women, towards the more developed educational opportunities for women, often facilitated by Christianity. And then interestingly enough, she left this path. She joined the True Jesus Church. And one day when she was in the chapel in Wuhan, someone came into the chapel seeking healing. So she laid her hands on this person's head. And according to this account that I read, when she laid her hands on the person's head, the person cried out and said, why is that when you laid your hands on my head, it was like fire and the person was healed. And she thought, why would I work as a nurse kind of taking care of sick people when I could just heal them by laying my hands on their head? And so she became, entered this third phase of her life where she became a deaconess in the True Jesus Church, Deaconess Young, and she traveled about establishing new churches and performing healing work. It seems strange, I think, that someone like her would lean in the direction of this new modern woman. She would be getting an education, being trained to be a medical professional, and then join what seems to us like a conservative religious tradition where women have different access to power than you might expect in a modernizing China. How do you account for that decision that she made? Well, I think it just shows that she felt she had more power in the True Jesus Church. What did that power look like in that church? Well, she felt like she healed people (laughs) by laying (laughs) hands on them which is very impressive. Were there other avenues for her? Like within the True Jesus Church, would she receive some sort of priesthood or would, would she lead a congregation or be seen as a prophetic figure? What did it look like for a woman in the church? So in the True Jesus Church, there are basically three kind of levels. The highest level is elder. That is a position held only by men. The next level is deacon or deaconess, and that can be held by men and women. And then preachers are also men and women, generally speaking. So the reason why women in the True Jesus Church can be deaconesses who perform saving ordinances like foot washing is because in the Bible, I believe it's in Second Timothy, there's a verse that talks about, in the King James Version, it says the deacons' wives. In the Chinese version of the Bible, it says the female deacons. And so because the True Jesus Church is strict adherence to the Bible, since it says female deacons, they have female deacons. And that persists today. Yeah. 
Is there any movement within the True Jesus Church for women that seek more than that? Or are there other Christian groups that criticize them for even having that much? I'm not sure. To my knowledge, there's no movement for women to be elders. But, you know, I don't think so. But in China itself, the official churches are quite progressive from a gender standpoint. There's female preachers and pastors and so on. So today it's not so significant. But then it was quite significant because Chinese Christianity was dominated by these mainline groups like Presbyterianism, Congregationalism, um, Episcopalianism. And in most of those traditions, women did not hold that kind of authority. Yeah, so in its time, it sort of emerged as this progressive, a place where women had more opportunity. But then as other Christian groups progressed over the years, some have caught up, some have gone further than the True Jesus Church has gone, and the True Jesus Church has kind of stayed in this particular place that they were at in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I wouldn't even call it progressive, you know? I mean, what does that mean at that yeah, time, yeah. you know? Yeah, it's, yeah it's, it's loaded language, right? It's sort of, <laughs> it exists on this map of opportunity and possibility within different religious organizations, right? And yeah, so during World War II, China is in real turmoil here. They're dealing with different political parties within the country. They're dealing with the invading Japanese. How did the True Jesus Church survive through this really turbulent time through World War II? Well, World War II is a disaster for everyone in China. One of the things the institutional church did was follow the official government of the church at the time, the Nationalist Party-led government, to Chongqing, which is a city in the interior of China. See, we're looking at a map right now. Yeah, and I see you see right Chongqing there. right there? Yeah, yep. right at the edge of the Tibetan Plateau. Yep, right there in the south, yeah. So Chongqing is hard to get to. Uh, the Japanese could only bomb it from the air because it's in the middle of an extremely mountainous region with very deep gorges. So the leaders of the True Jesus Church followed the government to this kind of refuge in Chongqing. And along with many citizens, there's this huge refugee population that moved to the southwest during World War II. And they survived there. When they're coming out of World War II, after 1949, the Chinese Communist Party consolidated its power. And and as you say in the book, it would brook no rivals. This was a group that wanted to dominate and be in charge of China's ideology. There wasn't going to be room for these different perspectives. And you say that a battle was waged over who got to control China's moral discourse. Talk about that the moral discourse of China and how the Communist Party came in conflict with other groups like the True Jesus Church. So in the early 1950s, before the real high tide of Maoism, there were numerous religious groups in China, and they still kind of had some rough toleration from the government. But beginning in the mid-1950s, late 1950s, the political rhetoric in China intensified and kind of penetrated every aspect of society. So At that point, for example, during the anti-rightist movement in 1957, where intellectuals were attacked, you know, people who are pastors or preachers, people who discourse from the pulpit about texts and teach about moral values or about kind of ideological systems, those people also came onto the radar screen as people who are teaching backward things, people who are not preaching the party line. And so many Christian leaders came under attack during that time. Including leaders of the True Jesus Church? Yep. And what's kind of sad, I guess, but completely realistic, is that if you look at the records, you can see how there's this drastic shift in the rhetoric of the church over time. So, for example, if you look at records from church-wide 
kind of top leadership meeting in 1953. It's, you know, quoting the Bible right and left, you know, and like using all this terminology and there's an amen here and amen there. And then just several months later, another sort of document, it reads just like a kind of communist party manual with all the kind of propaganda terms. And it talks about how religion is, Christianity is a poison and how this doctrine of unconditional love is simply imperialist weeds because it teaches us to love enemies even when they're trying to, you know, they're imperialists and horrible people. So this shift in rhetoric is quite striking. And that was about the same time that the church eventually went underground because it just, it, there's no way for it to function as a church above ground. You talk about how people reacted to communist control in a lot of different ways. Some kind of capitulated to the new regime by either just kind of doing away with what they had before and joining up the communist cause. Other people pretended to do that. And then fewer outright openly rebelled with a lot of bad consequences. And it seemed like you were really trying to make sense of each of these decisions without turning to moral judgment on them, without calling someone a sellout or this person a fool for sticking their neck out. What was it like writing about that? Well, it's quite tricky because it's so easy to look back on the people who suddenly change their rhetoric and be like, <laughs> yeah, like you faker. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're like the person who, you know, who denies Christ or something like that. Yeah. But it wasn't just their own individual selves who were endangered by a rebellious or recalcitrant attitude. It was also their families. It was also their friends. And, you know, even the whole congregation as well, you know, could be dragged into very sticky situations by the rhetoric of a leader. So from that point of view, I feel sorry for them. They had an impossible choice to make. They had to speak publicly before both the Communist Party and their people and their own True Jesus Church congregants who would know exactly what they were saying, whichever, whatever way they went. Mm. So I feel sorry for them. That was that's tricky. And as the church was underground, this was basically meeting in secret, right? Not putting signs up, not publicly proselytizing and continuing to practice their faith, but with extreme caution, right? Because if they were caught, they could be exiled, they could be imprisoned, they could even be executed. Over time, the communist grip loosens a little bit. These underground communities start to resurface a little bit. There's some more breathing room. And you talk about the remarkable story of Deaconess Wong. Mm -hmm. She was a true Jesus Church member who reported a really remarkable vision in 1973 that kind of breathed new life into the true Jesus Church at a time when it was withering. Tell us a little bit about Deaconess Wong. So Deaconess Wong has, she's an older lady, and she had this kind of multi-day vision in which she was lying on her bed and her daughters-in-law thought that she was dying or possibly dead, but she later revived. But in the course of her multi-day vision of heaven, she dreamed that or saw that she was walking along this bright path into the sky and she comes to the gate of heaven and it's manned by these two fierce-looking angels. And then she listens behind the door and coming from behind the gates of heaven is this hymn that they sing in the true Jesus church. And so she says, I want to go inside. And they said, why do you want to go inside? And she says, because they're singing like my church's song in there. So that's a pretty good credential. So they you know, open the door and she goes through this gate and she sees like this huge hall filled with tens of thousands of people and people are singing. And in the front, she sees some old people from the true Jesus church they, who recognize them and make a place for her. And in the front of the hall, there are angels who are teaching a lesson with Bible stories and they have like, now I guess it would look like a tablet, you know? They've got like this big tablet that has moving Bible pictures on it 
like scenes from the Bible. It's like a big screen. Yeah, but they're like holding it and like teaching from it. And they're writing on a chalkboard, but in letters of gold. And so it's this very interesting scene. But the gist of the vision is all of the stories that she sees taught in this thing are the stories of people who, in the Bible, who stood up to the state like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and all these other stories. And there's a kind of a song that is associated with this story that very clearly talks about how people followed God and not the government and how that was most important. And the message of her vision spread very quickly, and people got copies of it and moved it around. And and from that time, the church began to kind of revive in southeastern China. Wasn't that scene as kind of radical, though? If she's basically pitting the true Jesus church against the government, I mean, she's implying that one of those is illegitimate, Mm. and it's not the true Jesus church. Right. But the really great thing about older ladies in China is they can basically do what they want. So the state doesn't care about them, but they have a lot of status within their families and their communities because Mm. of all their relational capital. So I think it's a really good example of the kind of power of women, even when women don't have access to the top levels of structural hierarchies. They access other very real networks of power. And I think this vision and the basic kind of reality that during the period of repression, women were the ones who ran the church and kept it going. This all shows the value of that power and its substantial nature of that power. And this is quite a long time after the founder had died, right? What did the top hierarchy of the True Jesus Church look like at this point? Did they have a particular leader? Was it governed by a council? So during the 1950s, the centralized leadership was dismantled, and they never recovered that leadership. Now the True Jesus Church is regionalized into different factions. And it's kind of in a precarious place in China you talk about in the book. Perhaps nothing symbolizes that better than a sign that's posted on one of their church buildings in a city in South China that you visited. Talk about that a little bit. So in China, the official line is that there's five approved religions. There's Christianity, Protestant Christianity, Catholic Christianity, Islam, Taoism, and Buddhism. Those are the five official religions. So all of the Christian churches, if you're not Catholic, are supposed to be kind of just generic, non-denominational Protestant. So China's supposed to be a post-denominational society. Therefore, you're not supposed to be able to have the true Jesus church as such. It's just supposed to be this Christian church, like any other Christian church. Like a Jesus church. <laughs> a church. True, yeah. Right. Because denominations are not supposed to exist. Now, of course, this isn't the actual reality. And it's very important for the true Jesus church, since they believe they're the one true church to kind of maintain this denominational identity. So there's this church in the city in South China where it's kind of locally famous because they have this sign. And in Chinese, it says chapel. But then in English, it says true Jesus church. (laughs) It shows the way in which that kind of navigation of the official rules that govern the status quo is, is very tricky. And that sign, it's probably escaping certain people's notice, right? Like, it's not like the Chinese government would sanction that. It's kind of subversive. It's kind of a subversive sign, even though it's in English and sort of hidden away. Yeah, I mean, there's differences in enforcement as well. Sometimes churches have really good relationships with local officials and they don't care. Hmm. And other times, local officials have a quota of churches that they would like to kind of whack down to show how vigilant they are about maintaining control over the ideological sphere. There's a section in the book called Truth and Trust that I think will resonate with a lot of readers right now. China's 
experiencing something of a truth crisis. You talk about the True Jesus Church is trying in its own way to respond to that crisis. So the economic boom has led to a lot of profiteering in China. I'm sure people have heard stories about contaminated food or contaminated milk powder or milk powder with high levels of melamine in it and so on. So just because there's so many fake things in China, religious communities, not just Christian, but, you know, Buddhist, Taoist, the religion has actually been booming in China because I think people are hungry for something that's real, that has moral standard, and that makes truth claims. And this is also kind of compounded, not just by the economic competition and profiteering, but by the way in which political rhetoric or political ideology doesn't always match reality as well. So generally speaking, people in China are very nationalistic and and generally really approve of the Chinese Communist Party's rule. However, there are certain times when if you find yourself on the wrong side of the party state, everyone knows that's a really bad situation to be in and so on. So there's a lot of education campaigns and ideological campaigns in China to kind of promote values and morality. But the most organic way to do that really is within religious communities. And so I think people are flocking to religious communities looking for connections with people and for ways to be good. And the people who are part of the True Jesus Church are not just poor, uneducated people. In some of the cities where I study the church, it's members of top-tier universities, young 20-something-year-olds who are joining the church because they're attracted to the way of life and the moral standards and so on. And they see it perhaps as more truth-telling than the state party might be, right? The difference between propaganda and news reporting. Yeah, yeah, definitely, because it's a small community where people have to be accountable to each other. So even though groups like the True Jesus Church are supposed to support the people and support the state party and do things according to the state's interest, it still offers strong critiques of Chinese culture, though. The church, it almost seems to have, in the book here, sort of a love-hate relationship with China. They don't just say the state's perfect and great and then go do their own thing. They have critiques to offer as well. Yeah. I mean, they never explicitly criticize the government itself, but there are plenty of critiques of society, saying society is morally bankrupt, people are just out to make money, and you'll only find true meaning in Jesus. What do you think they would think the state is to blame in part for that? Or are they just being cautious about what they can and can't say? Everyone has to be pretty cautious with what they say about the state. And I think it also depends on how much you have to interact with the state. So obviously, church officials who have to deal with local officials may have a more complicated relationship with the party state than just the kind of garden variety person in the pews who's never had any problem going to church. And the True Jesus Church is also pretty interested in China's rise to global power as well. The, The more prominent China becomes on the international scene, the more the True Jesus Church seems to like it as well. What are their thoughts about that? Why does that matter? Well, so, you know, they're a Christian restorationist group. So their fundamental claim is that the one true church was established in China in 1917. So sometimes that's a hard sell for people who think about authentic Christianity as being European or Middle Eastern or something like that. You don't usually think China when you think Christianity. So someone once told me, you know, when China's a powerful country, then people will respect our church more and join our church more. That's Melissa Inouye. We're talking to her about the book China and the True Jesus, Charisma and Organization in a Chinese Christian Church. Melissa, at the end of the book, you emphasize how the True Jesus Church is still very charismatic in the sense that it still promotes things like speaking in tongues and miraculous healings and things like that. 
And so you interacted with members of the True Jesus Church and witnessed people living their religion in that way. How did you feel as a researcher being so close to something that's sacred to someone? You have to be very careful. I was very grateful when people told me stories of the sacred experiences that they'd had. As a religious person myself, I thought, how would I like people to treat me if I told them something that I believed or something that had happened to me? It's really amazing the kinds of stories that I heard. I had one woman say how she was holding the feet of a dead woman who'd committed suicide when the woman came back to life. I've heard many stories of miraculous healings, and the world of religious experience is very rich and diverse. Yeah. Did it change anything about how you view your own faith or your writing about religion? Did it change you at all? I think it did. I mean, the True Jesus Church is a restorationist tradition, right? I'm a Latter-day Saint. We are a restorationist tradition. I grew up thinking that we were so cool because we were restorationists and we were the only ones who'd come up with that idea. But then when you study the history of Christianity, restoration is a genre, right? So it caused me to think a little more thoroughly about what it was actually about my faith that was unique and distinctive. I certainly admire the lives of the True Jesus Church members. I think they're trying to do a very admirable thing to build community, to serve each other in the middle of a society which is unmoored in so many ways from kind of strong moral and ideological foundations. I guess you just realize as a researcher that religious experience, even if it's not your own, even if it's hard to objectively verify, is very powerful. It shapes how people live their lives. It shapes the meaning that they find in their everyday activities. It strengthens their relationships and affects which relationships they develop. So whether or not you believe in a set of religious claims, the fact that religion is consequential is undeniable. The last thing I want to ask you about is about this tension between charisma and organization and speaks to this because you're talking about the power that religion has to help people forge their identity or figure out their place in the world. Those religious activities exist within organizations as well. And there can be tension between individual experience of charisma, like speaking in tongues or prophesying, and an institution's needs, desires, and directives. And your book explores that tension. So I thought we'd conclude with just a few thoughts about how that tension played out, how how you saw it playing out in the True Jesus Church, and why you decided to make that the focus of your overall book. I'm really intrigued by the tension between charisma and organization because they don't work without each other, but they also corrode each other. So for example, if you've got this really cool idea, like there's this person who rose from the dead whose name was Jesus and he did miracles. That's a cool idea, but if you don't have the organization to kind of keep a group of people thinking about Jesus, reading Jesus's texts, worshiping Jesus and so on, you're not going to have a Christian movement. At the same time, if you just kind of become nothing but a bureaucracy, then you will smother that spark of the divine that attracts people in the first place. And this happens in religious movements like the True Jesus Church. You know, it starts with these very charismatic visions, and then eventually the church institutionalizes, and they have to kind of maintain these two things. You see this in other religious traditions. For example, all Christian traditions have to wrestle with this, you know, Buddhist traditions. All religious traditions have this tension. But you also see it in often political movements. So, you know, the Qing imperial bureaucracy was held together by this charismatic idea that the emperor was the son of heaven, and there would be earthquakes and horrible things. 
things if the emperor didn't do a good job as a moral ruler. It's also there in the work of the Chinese Communist Party. Communism is a very lofty ideal, this idea that the government is there to serve the people, the people are the government. And yet maintaining that across a population as large as China's requires security forces. Today it involves very extensive censorship, control of information, policing, all of that stuff as well. So it's really hard to maintain that balance. And how did you see the True Jesus Church doing it? Well, they have fragmented into little pieces. So I think some parts of the church are more charismatic than others. Hmm. But, you know, the fact that they speak in tongues keeps a charismatic practice at the center of their worship all the time. It's pretty remarkable to hear a room full of people all speaking in tongues at the same time. Thanks, Melissa. I'm glad you took the time to talk to us. People that are interested in the book, it's called China and the True Jesus, Charisma and Organization in a Chinese Christian Church. It was published by Oxford University Press. Melissa, thanks for talking to us about the book today. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to another Maxwell Institute podcast episode. If you missed it, Melissa Inouye also joined us in an earlier episode to talk about her book, Crossings, a bald Asian-American woman scholar's ventures through life, death, cancer, and motherhood. Check that one out. I also want to say hello to some more of our Maxwell Institute podcast completists. These are people who've listened to every single episode. Graham Oxborough, Dave Laferve, I think. I don't know how to pronounce your last name, Dave, but again... For completists, they get the opportunity for me to mispronounce their name here on the podcast. The other one is Aaron Hoskins. I want to say thanks to you for listening, uh, you guys. Thanks for listening to every single episode. I want to hear from more completists. If you're out there, we're putting together a, a few little things to give away as prizes for people who have completed the entire run of shows. As soon as the pandemic settles down, we'll start to get those sent out. So you can let me know if you're a completist. Email me at mipodcast at byu.edu. And we'll talk to you next time on the Maxwell Institute Podcast. Podcast.